I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound Archive, writing.upen.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Ariel Resnikoff, poet, translator, editor, whose chapbook Between Shades was published by Materialist Press and whose poems from a new collection, Avoidances, have been featured by Jerome Rothenberg in Jacket 2, who, with Stephen Ross, has translated into English the modernist Yiddish poems of Mikhail Licht. How did I do with the pronunciation on that? Not bad. And who coordinates the Multilingual Poetics Talks reading series here at the Kelly Writers House. And by Catherine Hellerstein, poet and translator and professor in the Germanic Languages Department here at Penn, one of the world's foremost experts in Yiddish language and literature, whose many publications include A Question of Tradition, Women Poets in Yiddish, an award-winning book, I'm pleased to say, and major contributions to American Yiddish poetry, a bilingual edition, and an edition of the selected poems of Kaja Molodowski, and who co-edited the Norton Anthology of Jewish American Literature. And by Peter Cole, poet, editor, translator of Arabic and Hebrew poetic texts who divides his time between Jerusalem and New Haven, winner of a ton of awards and honors, including a MacArthur Award and a Penn Translation Award for Poetry, who has four published books of poems, including The Invention of Influence and Things on Which I've Stumbled, and whose The Poetry of Kabbalah, Mystical Views from the Jewish Tradition, is a capacious, wide-ranging, super helpful book that I personally recommend for anyone wanting to come to grips with the visionary and mystical strain in literary writing. Welcome to everyone. Peter, back to the Writer's House for another reading and uh, your second appearance on Poem Talk. Thank you, Al. It's good to be back uh, uh-huh. in Philly in the rain and yeah. uh, talking about Alan Grossman especially. And we did a Poem Talk on Charles Resnikoff back in 2012, which was a lot of fun. Right. And speaking of Resi, yeah. here's his great-grandnephew. Did I get that right? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Ariel, it's great. Thank you for, uh, for doing Poem Talk. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting. And Catherine, back at the writer's house, you've been here many, many times, and I think the first time on Poem Talk. My first time. Yeah. Hopefully not my last. Yeah. We should do this again. I'm already having a lot of fun. <laughs> well, okay, so we're here today to talk about a poem that appears in Alan Grossman's great book, Descartes' Loneliness, published by New Directions in 2007. Our poem is My Radiant Eye, which appears on page 45 of that book. And our recording of Grossman performing the poem was made on May 12th, 2009 at Harvard University, and for it, we are grateful to the folks at the Woodbury Poetry Room at Harvard who have made it available in their listening booth. So here now is Alan Grossman performing My Radiant Eye. My Radiant Eye. Or is on account of my radiant eye, I have lived so long. I never slept in the study hall or, anyone, or called anyone by an improper name. I never urinated in a desolate synagogue. I never ate or drank in a desolate synagogue or picked my teeth 
I did not walk into a desolate synagogue in the summer just because of the heat, nor in winter just because of cold rain. Also, I know one may not deliver a eulogy for an individual inside a desolate synagogue, but you can read scripture inside a desolate synagogue, neither Talmudic rules, or you can teach in a desolate synagogue, or deliver eulogies for the community in a desolate synagogue. When synagogues are deserted, they are to be left alone and weeds allowed to grow. One should not pick the weeds lest there be anguish that the synagogue is in ruin. When are the synagogues to be swept so that weeds do not grow inside them? Or when they are in use. When synagogues are in ruins, weeds are not to be picked up. Now, because I know these things, I was approved, although unworthy, after a three-day oral examination before the king of Sicily, <laughs> to whom by custom the power of approval in these matters is entrusted. Thereafter I have worn the laurel crown, my eye radiant to this day. Wow, I, I, I want to start in five different places. Uh, what occurs to me first is to ask you all, where is this voice coming from? Is this a voice we should be... Is he channeling a certain kind of voice? What's the, what, is, what do we do with the voice, the performed voice? Any thoughts? Well, the first thought, I, I only met Grossman once, um, probably in 2008, something like that. Um, and so I never heard him perform, but I've heard recordings here of lectures, and I'll never forget the voice that I encountered when I first met him. And this is a very different voice in the sense of this is two years before he died. Um, you feel him slipping a little bit. Yeah. You know, and then he turns it into sort of the high comedy that's part of the whole late poetics, I think. Um, so I hear fragility here. I mean, you have that tremendous Vatic uh, sweep and, and boost, but I also hear a fragility here that you wouldn't necessarily get on the page. Catherine? Well... I have almost the opposite experience of you, Peter, because um, Alan Grossman was my professor when I was a junior at Brandeis in the, oh, I don't want to say don't the year. You don't have to say when. <laughs> okay, the fall of my, the year, my junior year when I transferred to Brandeis from Wellesley. <clears throat> and I took uh, Hum 1, I think, Humanities 1 with him. Like a general education course. Yeah, it was, well, it was the course to take. And uh, he gave these lectures in that voice, more powerful. I was thinking the other day, I, I was about 20, and he must have been 40, 38, but he seemed so old and ancient and prophetic, and I, I'll never forget him intoning the Bible and uh, Homer. Um, so that's what I hear. I agree that he, there's a kind of wavering there. And I actually spoke with uh, Meira Schreiber, who's a friend of mine, and 
um, who was Alan Grossman's, uh, one of his doctoral students, and who was very close friends with Grossman's widow, Judith Grossman. And they, I wrote, I spoke to her and said, you know, where do you see this poem going? And she said, well, he's, this is the last book, and he's really, he is fragile, and he's slipping, and he slipped into Alzheimer's, and um that was that is sort of the context. I don't think he's there yet, but I think he, in the dark poems of this book, he, um, you feel this encounter with the end. This is so interesting, Ariel. The what we're hearing is that we've got a combination of Vatic and, um, you know, sweeping authoritative and fragility and unsurety. Uh, we're the voice to me. Uh, picks up a certain grammar and rhetoric of rules. I was about to say commandments, but it's more rules. I assume made up rules. Some of them are made up about weeds or not to be picked there. Um, Are not to be. That sounds like he's listing rules about what we should and shouldn't do in synagogues. So what should we make something of that? Is this just a Deuteronomy-like listing of things you should do made up by a poet who's not sure what he's doing? What's going on there with that voice? I, I like this idea of uh, slipping or slippage between um, the speech and the text. I've, I've been thinking a lot about writing Bart's writing degree zero and the space between speech and writing. And I, I actually, I enjoy, um, and perhaps Peter, you're right, that this is a um, condition of, of a later poetics engrossment and perhaps even coming to an Alzheimer's um, type of situation psychologically. I like that he um, seems to be engaged with the text, but not necessarily completely committed to it. Um, you mean as he performs it? As he performs it, that's right. And so He went off on that little thing that started to be about Talmudic something. Peter, which itself was like a Talmudic digression. Mm-hmm. Let's exactly. move away that's from right. the main text. Now we'll go into the commentary. He's going to give his own commentary. On but the then he ran text. out of steam on the digression. Right, right. right. Yeah. Uh, I just love that... Um, you get this sense for the poem, which is outside of the page, which exists momentarily in his mind, but really only exists in this recording. And which is central to Grossman's late poetics, the the virtual poem, right? The poem that's uh, the ideal poem, the poem that can never be realized, that every poet is writing in relation to the poem that actually gets written. Let's switch gears and do a little semantics here, uh, uh, semantic reading. Desolate synagogue is repeated. So let's just say the obvious. I mean, what what is being conjured here? I mean, why the desolate synagogue? Why the weeds? Um, well, I saw it and I uh, went looking for the Talmudic passage that he was uh, referring to. And actually, the term in the Talmudic passage, at least in the English translation of the Babylonian Talmud, is not desolate, but um, ruined, hurva, uh, hurva. The, the ruined synagogue. Um, and um, I'm sorry, and there are, are there rules about what we can yes. and can't do? You want to hear them? Yes, okay. a few of them, certainly. I, My okay. goodness. So, there are plenty of ruined uh, synagogues. Rev. Josie says, once, I was once traveling on the road, and I entered into one of the ruins of Jerusalem in order to pray. Elijah of blessed memory appeared and waited for me at the door till I finished my prayer. After that, he says, um, he says to him, why did you go into this ruin? I replied to pray. He said, you ought to have prayed on the road. I was afraid I was going to get interrupted or mugged, says Reb Josie. 
And the and Elijah says to him, you should have said an abbreviated prayer. And then I learned from him three things. One must not go into a ruin. One may say the prayer on the road. And if one does say his prayer on the road, he recites an abbreviated prayer. Furthermore, my son, what sound did you hear in the ruin? I heard a divine voice cooing like a dove and saying, Woe to the children on account of whose sins I destroyed my house and burnt my temple and exiled them among the nations of the world. So there ain't, maybe elsewhere there are these rules, but um, the rule here is don't go praying in a, in a ruined synagogue. Uh, there's none of this urinating and uh, who you can say a eulogy for. Well, there's none of this negative. I didn't right. do this and I didn't do that. So, uh, Peter, Ariel, uh, why why this? Why think about this yeah. situation? So, first of all, based on just uh, respond to what Catherine said, I wondered if the king, I know who the king is in that passage in the Talmud, but... I wondered if it was the king of Sicily for for Grossman at some you know absurd right. level because so much of this is about a certain and he failed that examination parallel. he says in the poem I was approved although unworthy he didn't fail it he, he didn't succeeded fail. but he wasn't but worthy but that's also classic approved but unworthy I mean classic how say it well classic in the sense of again that no no actual poem can possibly measure up to the the moment of registration or revelation or however you want to say it. But in terms of the, the synagogue, I didn't go looking up the Talmud, I think, just because I had enough of them. I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised. Uh, so, That's, isn't that what you no, do? Be, well, partly, no. Um, partly because I have, I've read, I've loved Grossman poetry for a long, long time. He was one of my really early um, powerful encounters as a poet when I, when I was 20, probably 21. And I don't think... You know, he, he, that, I'm sure he had that in there. That was the trigger. But he tends not to work that way as far as I know. What I see is a kind of um, radiant relation between the central place of assembly, synagogue, Beit Knesset, right, the place where people come together, uh, and in this poem and other poems in this volume. So, for example, where do we have a place of revelation, devotion, study uh, that's that's kind that has a kind of power to it. Uh, elsewhere in this poem, in this book, well, the Cadman Room, the first poem. I think it's the first poem in the book, but it's such. It's the he's written this wonderful essay about this. That is the place, the archetypal situation, certainly in the Western tradition of poetic inspiration. I admire. That you went and found that passage, Catherine, because that was my first. I thought I should do that, but then I didn't. Uh, and uh, well, you've been I, busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, instead, I um, decided to. You know, in a poem like this, I feel like there are two ways to go. And uh, my teacher Al Phil Reese would tell me there's a value to the first reading, also. And my first reading um, of this poem, my first listening um, as well. What I heard was a, a juxtaposition between a secularness and a, and a religiousness, um, which is um, bound together in a, in a very problematic way through learnedness, um, which was something which um, until Jewish Enlightenment, Haskalah, um, starting in the late 17th century, uh, early 18th century, I should say, learnedness was completely relegated to, uh, for Jewish learnedness was completely relegated to religious matters. And um, a, a poem like this certainly 
uh, couldn't have existed at that time, obviously, but also uh, seems to me to be working within a Jewish Enlightenment tradition that uh, sees learnedness, Jewish learnedness, as something which can be outside of religious Jewishness. What do you do with the distinction that he seems to be making between the rule or pseudo-rule against delivering a eulogy in a desolate synagogue Eulogy and, uh, for an individual. An individual. Yeah, what did I say? Well, no, Just but a it, it, he says he distinguishes. Yes, a eulogy for an Yeah, but sorry, a, I misstated. For a community, it's For a okay. community, you can do it. Right. So, so think, yeah, go ahead, please. I think that's actually one of the keys to the repetition of desolate synagogue. And he doesn't say ruined synagogue. He says desolate because desolate also refers to an emotional state. It's, it's a deserted place and a faraway place and an abandoned place. Um, but it's also one can feel desolate yeah. as well. And I think it's very much about, I think the whole book is very much about emotions at, at, at a moment of, bef- an anticipatory moment before yeah. dying. Um, oh, this is a pre-elegy. I think so. And and so he is delivering a eulogy, elegy uh, for a, com- and he says you, he makes up the rule of that you can make, that you can eulogize a community but not an individual, and I think that that the the ruined, desolate synagogue is um, the locus of a ruined, uh, abandoned, uh, dispersed community. There is no community around him, and that may go back to what you were saying about him seeking uh, a place in. America. I mean, you in did. You said poetry po- for poetry, well, or think, a place yeah. in poetry for the Jew, or for. Well, the- I think first of all, for in, if you read his in terms of his criticism or his essays, I don't know how to call it criticism, but his his writings about poetry over the years and those massive interviews he's done, he's obsessed with the place of poetry. Period. Poetry itself. If we're going to say Cadman Desolate Synagogue equal, equals the Cadman Room. Um, or the Cadman Room declined, right? The Cadman Room is the beginning and the desolate synagogue is the end. And this is a poem of retrospection. It's the, right? how, it's how the end. Long, it's, I've never, I never slept in study hall. Study hall evokes that Minnesota kid. Right. So does urination in a synagogue. But he didn't do that. He's, he's apologizing for a sin he never committed. Right. But I think the reason Catherine's not finding this... Um, more evidence of mourning a lost community is because, or lost Jewish communities, because that's not really what's on his mind. This is almost a eulogy for the lone poet, the lone, I mean, Descartes' loneliness. That's what this book is about. Right. And he has this afterward where he talks about this is the situation of the poet, not making um, syllogistic, logical Descartian connections, but anyone, he has a kind of specious logic here, you know, what is all these these rules that you mentioned? He throws them out as if we can follow him. What do they Which mean? we can't. Who, who knows, right? And then, and then you get to the this wonderful because I know these things, right, right? right? As if this is the most logical, inevitable thing in the world. I was approved, and he gives you this absurd kind of comic operatic um, trial or um, you know hearing in which he's he's approved and gets the laurel crown. The the comedy, the the sort of theater of the absurd within the drama of the poem, is what redeems the impossible situation he finds himself in as a poet. Ariel, what do you make of this? So uh, I, I enjoyed, Al, your reading of Study Hall as the study hall from his childhood and 
school because it's to me it's a it's a pun you know i mean it, it's a double entendre it's the study hall is also the study hall of the synagogue the, the base midrash um um but i think it has to be both in that way that it has to be uh, walking the line between both of those things it can't be either or um i'm going to interrupt you i i don't i don't well, I guess I do this a lot. But anyway, um, what you're saying makes me think we need to talk about the it in the first line. Or is it on an account? Is that the poem? Is that the, is that the pretext for the poem? Or, or, or now I'm in this part of my late style, am I turning to this account? Can so, you do it? Yeah, so I can do it. I can do some it, but um, it's actually... And it's in media race, right? Or is it... We're, right. we're in the middle of a conversation. That's right, yeah. yeah. It is in media race. So um, this actually relates to what I was thinking as Peter was making his last comment, which is about what is it that, that Grossman is doing in terms of intertext with uh, the Talmud or with Midrash or with, you know, any, any of these Jewish texts, it's much less actually about anything in content. Uh, in fact, it, it seems to be in some ways playing in, in almost a parodic sense on these, but it's so much about form. And right. it makes me think of the, the conversation that you, you had uh, in Peter in your last poem talk here on Reznikov, which I thought was wonderful, on uh, Midrashic poetics, where Reznikov is writing about these uh, very banal and and uh, and totally uh, concrete and uh, but very contemporary for him uh, moments in New York, walking about the city. But he's using this Midrashic form very self-consciously. Uh, I see because at the same time that certainly the couplets make a, I mean, I, it, it reads just like a modern poem. So much of it could be drawn right out of a Talmudic passage, if I didn't you know. Well, anybody. certainly the questioning, right? I mean, it starts it media stress with a question. It's the questioning itself that gives it what's you know, Coleridge said, the, the energy of asking. To answer your question, what is the it in the first yes. line, yes, or is you. it on account of my radiant eye? I think the it refers to the question that is asked before the poem begins. Why have you why have you lived so long? And he already gave the speaker already gave an answer, blah blah blah, good genes, I took care of my heart, or is it on account of my radiant eye? Mm -hmm. I have lived so long. So I think the it well, it I'm not really answering your question. Am I the it refers to the question the question why have you lived so long? I have lived so long because on account of my radiant eye. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, I like that reading. Um, I, I like the idea that prior to the poem is some kind of uh, prosaic answer. It is partly the answer to the question, but it is also the poem, right? Is, is this poem the radiant eye part of the answer about my life and about retrospection and about the Cadman Room and how it's now a desolate synagogue. So this is where the poetry still comes in. When synagogues are deserted, they are to be left alone and weeds allowed to grow. One should not pick the weeds lest there be anguish that the synagogue is in ruin. When are the synagogues to be swept so that weeds do not grow inside them? Or when they are in use. When synagogues are in ruins, weeds are not to be picked there. 
Now, because I know these things, I was approved, although unworthy. After a three-day oral examination before the king of Sicily, <laughs> to whom by custom the power of approval in these matters is entrusted, thereafter I have worn the laurel crown, my eye radiant to this day. Can we each try, starting with Catherine, to connect the possibly ironic laurel crown, which is separated by a dash, so that grammatically this should follow uh, that and the po presumably unironic eye radiant to this day. Let's each take a crack at that. Okay. Catherine, you want but to start? Can I contextualize it please, first? Um, please. I, I'm, I guess I'm a footnote or homework doer, um, or I've, that's what I've turned into at this point in my life. But um, I wanted to find out wh who was getting the laurel crown from the king of Sicily, and I think it's Petrarch. So what the heck my, oh, I was boy. asking. Um, I started you, asking you myself. You actually diminished that discovery in the, in the preface to it by saying you're just a noodler <laughs> and a footnoter, and then you wowed us with Petrarch. So, um, so my question was, when the heck did Petrarch have time to learn Talmud? And <laughs> <laughs> even if it's fake Talmud that he's inventing himself. So, but I, I actually think this goes back to the poet somehow being out of context in the world or trying to find a place for poetry in the world. And so in Petrarch's world, even if Petrarch was a, a yeshiva bocher, Somehow or other, um, <laughs> he got the crown of the laurel crown from the king of Sicily, and wow, it's it's going to be from one king or another. Yeah, right, right. You, Catherine Hellerstein, have done it. Mm. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, the rest of us are just picking up the leavings. But I'd love for you, Peter and Ariel, to take another crack at, you know, the poet's laurel crown, the conferring of the status in its relation to this um, visionary thing of the radiant eye. Who wants to go first? I'm thinking about a, a way of seeing. Um, I loved everything that you said, Peter, about uh, all of the various resonances and um, reverberations of radiant and I, um, because I think that there, there's, I mean, it's in some ways, it's such a dense uh, poem. And then in, in other ways, it's wonderfully light and you can hear him laughing actually i loved as it. if he, to say did i really write that right, I love <laughs> am it. i supposed to read that right. now it's dense and rarefied at the same time that's yeah. right yeah. yeah um but i i wonder uh, about this um laurel crown and this um this turn i mean it's 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 wonderfully unexpected, and I think he surprised himself in that way. I mean, it could have been the Alzheimer's, but he surprised himself that suddenly it, the poem turns to the king of Sicily because you've been in this desolate synagogue the whole time. And uh, again, I, I think that, and I've been emphasizing this, I think that it has to do uh, um, with a way of seeing between things, um, that you the, the laurel crown has to do with... Um, uh, the, the relationship between the laurel crown and the radiant eye is uh, uh, an ability to um, write a poem about a desolate synagogue, um, but at the same time, and, and formally connected to all of this uh, Jewish intertext, but at the same time, um, be doing something that's wholly modern and, and completely disconnected also. Peter, you and want to take a stab at that? Not just modern, you, but Western, right? Right, yeah. Pre-modern, pre too, because if you go back to Cadman, that's for... Right. Yeah. And this is something that I think Grossman was trying to do all his life. He's had this stuff 
on his mind um, from the very, very beginning. So initially, I read The King of Sicily. Um, partly, we all read where we come from uh, as the from medieval Hebrew poetry and Arabic poetry as the the king of syncretism, which sort of jives with exactly what you're saying. And he is Sicily's a, a culture that's making these syncretic connections all the time. Um, and so he is trying here in, the, in a poem like this with this very banal kind of non-poetic Jewish language and then turns in this kind of, um, you know, mock uh, absurd summation, the laurel of the Western tradition, whether it's Petrarch or the king of kings. Splendor is what is being both received, right? Again, the radiance that's that's reflected uh, off something onto him and then that he is giving out. You know, when you said, is it ironic? I think it's totally ironic or, or at least uh, comic, high comic. And that for him, the only way that he can get the transcendent impulse or transcendent experience in his mind plausibly into a contemporary poem is with this kind of buffoonish, holy fool sort of uh, imperson uh, impersonation here. Um, so that's the way I understand a lot of the poems in this book and, and certainly what's going, on, um, what's going on here. That's great. What I'd like to do, since we could talk about Alan Grossman forever, I'd like to invite each of you quickly, please, just to say one more thing. And maybe I'll add something, too. Just one more thing about the poem that you didn't get a chance to say and wanted to. Catherine, you must have something you want to add. Um, well, back to the repetition of desolate synagogue, that phrase, it, it's, it has... He added an extra one, didn't he? In the yes, reading? he did, in, in the re reading. Yeah, yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, well, there's something both pedantic about it, right, and Talmudic, I guess, and... And, and unpoetic. And unpoetic, but at the same time, repetition is also a form of refrain and so this becomes for me my ear it becomes poetic in a way and so he's making an english poem out of pedantry and talmudic study that seems to be at odds with the radiance of his eye i don't think he believes in the laurel crown that he got i don't think he values it that much and i actually i do hear Irony and a joke uh, in the the radiance of the ongoing radiance of the eye, but on the other hand, thinking about this poem in the context of the rest of the this volume, there's there is radiance in the volume, and it's and there's um, incredible longing and struggling with to accept the inevitability of what's happening, and so I think there's a kind of light that's coming out of the poem. Shining, he's shining it somehow on mortality, mm, a radiance. That's what I'm thinking. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Peter? But I would just add that it's a light radiance in, the, in both senses. That it's with a very light touch, uh, in that poem, splendor, um, which has so many of these things in it as well. Splendor. It's on page sixty. The eye altering alters the world, alters all. Come here, Josephina, help me thread the needle. There will be wedding. Six bridesmaids and twelve groomsmen need splendor. I mean, it's fabulous. So yeah. it, it has all those things you're saying, and I think he feels the only way he can get them in is through this incredibly light touch. I mean, there is one other, uh, two, two things I'll uh, end with. One is that we haven't talked about his essay, Jewish Poetry as a Theophoric Project, which is 
too much for, say for the, anyone. Say the um, title again. So Jewish people. Poetry as a Theophoric Project, in which he contrasts essentially the Western notion of inspiration, starting with Hesiod and going to Cadman, and the um, Jewish notion, which is a calling um, from above. One is a calling from below, one is a calling from above, one's to representation, one's beyond representation. And he's been fighting, he fought with this all throughout his poetics in a very moving. So there's a sadness there, there's also the lightness. And the only thing, I would, the last thing I would say is that I wonder what the weeds are in this poem. Are his poems weeds? Is his feeling that weeds growing in a desolate synagogue is all poetry can do and is its own kind of beauty? And you are not to pick them, even though they are obviously And what does that garbage. mean not to pick them? They're not bouquets. They're not well-tended gardens. No, but, but I of think course, he is picking them. He says these. pick the weeds yeah. as you would flowers. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ariel, final word. I'm going to throw a curveball here. <laughs> you waited till the end for that? <laughs> Got to. I'm thinking of actually of Franz Kafka. And uh, I'm thinking about a teacher who would not like me to say uh, his name on <laughs> poem talk, so I'm not going to say it, but a, a great teacher that I had who told me, you want to understand Franz Kafka's work, go and stand in the cathedral in the square outside of where he's born in Prague. And I did that, and, and what I thought about was this huge laurel crown almost. I mean, this huge... Um, this huge, beautiful, um, incredible project of, of uh, Western civilization, uh, non-Jewish civilization in, in particular, that then Kafka felt his his world in comparison to. Um, and I don't think that uh, we can read Grossman as a <laughs> somehow shadowing Kafka, but I think that any um, Jewish writer in the 20th century is going to have to in some way deal with desolation. Um, and the um, juxtaposition between radiance and desolation and, and where writing and uh, a poetics exists between those two things. Wow. Okay, so we've all received that curveball, and <laughs> I don't know what you do with a curveball. I, I suppose you're supposed to hit it. Um, I caught it. I, I, you <laughs> caught it. Yeah. Right. I, I want to... The receiver. Right? Jack the receiver. Spicer, the poet is That's right. <laughs> receiver. That's right. Yes, get your rabbit ears and tune in. Right. <laughs> um, I just want to focus for my final word on on a few words. Uh, I think Peter already mentioned them. Italicize because I know these things. I find this poem tr of tremendous pathos um, because at, when you get to that point, you know he does not know these things, and it's not simply the modernist irony of not knowing. Oh, nor is it the irony of the visionary or mystical not knowing that there is no denoted uh, thing that a word can describe because it's so radiant that thing is thus the word is but a, a series at the beginning of the poem of remembered not remembered negative memories of things he didn't do not because you're not supposed to because he's making up the rules, but because he probably doesn't remember whether or not he slept in study hall when he should have been awake or whether or not he urinated. It is such a specific memory that one thinks that even a great poet probably does remember these things but is setting things up so that this is a series of rules about not remembering. And when you get to because I know these things, the pathos has reached a peak. And of course, like all great poets, he realizes he's gotten there and needs to deflate it a little bit. And there you get the humor of the king and the ironic clown, 
did I say clown? My goodness. Crown. <laughs> unironic. But, unironic but clown. Go, right? Yes. That's so he clowns yeah. around because he's gotten to this extremely vulnerable, to use a word you all used earlier, vulnerable moment of realizing, hell, I don't know these things and that the rules are all for shit and I don't know what to do in the desolate synagogue. Mm. Well, um, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the poetry world deemed, you know, capaciously defined. So who wants to gather some paradise? Ariel, you have something in mind, I think. I do indeed. Uh, I just recently read Susan Howe's new book, Spontaneous Particulars, The Telepathy of Archives. And that is a tremendous work. Uh, and I had the uh, pleasure and privilege of talking to Susan about it. And she's doing so many things in that book. And I recommend it to people who are interested in poetry, people who are interested in scholarship, people who are interested in uh, art. Um, it's really an art book uh, that's full of poetry and, and many other things. Great. Peter? Um, this summer, I read two incredibly powerful books. One is Langdon Hammer's biography of James Merrill, which is, um, first of all, beautifully written, sort of magisterially managed. It's, it's enormous and takes you through uh, great details of Merrill's life and uh, every register. Um, but it also presents a side of Merrill's openness and... Um, you know, not just the formalist poet that he's often, you know, that he's rightfully identified as, but the just serious, wild imagination and struggle within himself to to deal with um, the currents of his day. Uh, so it's one of the one of the best biographies of a poet I've read in a long, long time. And then also another massive book. I had a book of um, a summer of massive books. Uh, Joshua Cohn's novel, a book of numbers. Um, which is has an awful lot of poetry just sort of running through its veins and is a uh, also like the Grossman, a kind of high-minded comic send-up of so many Jewish things that meet the world of Google and the world we're in now. So, Fantastic. Great Thank you. Catherine, gather some paradise. Um, I'm not sure it's paradise, but it was really interesting. I have two things to mention. Uh, I read... Recently, Janet Malcolm's Two Lives. Um, About her, Stein her take and Alice. On, yeah, mm -hmm. Gertrude and Alice. And it's it's a weird little book, but I loved it. It was... Um, she's pretty rough on the gang. Yeah. She's very rough on them, and she's extremely mean to poor Alice B. Toklas. But, but I got an insight into Gertrude Stein that I hadn't gotten when we read her in our class with Ariel and I last uh, spring. And then... I keep translating women Yiddish poets, and um, and in the context of Malka Lee's poetry and Rachel Viprinsky's poetry, uh, their young woman poetry about pregnancy and abortion and uh, unprotected sex, believe it or not, in Yiddish in the 20s, they I wrote about it. this. Um, but I also 
just got and have started reading Merle Bachman's new book of poems. I think it's called Blood Memory. Blood and, Party. Oh, Blood Party. Okay, see, my Lucky memory. I didn't recommend that because I was going to. So oh. <laughs> well, we stolen another curveball. you got to stop that. Yeah, so, uh, so I recommend Merle Bachman's Blood Party. Um, and uh, she's an amazing poet. It's Fantastic. got a great cover, too. I usually do one recommendation, but I'm going to do two today. The first is our own Catherine Hellerstein. If you are a young person out there, a high school-aged person, and you are thinking about going to a college or a university where you can learn Yiddish, you know, there are some. I don't know how many, Catherine. 10, 15. 10, 15 yeah. out of the 1,000 or so. Stop by the University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, really, uh, my own son, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, studied Hebrew and then Persian. This is a great school for learning Persian. But that's not the point here. The point here is Yiddish is alive and well on some campuses. And Catherine has, I don't want to say single-handedly, but she has led the way to keep this uh, going. And you have students? There are students? Yes, there are students. There are students, yes. We don't have thousands, but the ones we have are fantastic. Yeah. And stick with it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, languages are dying. Uh, many, many languages are dying uh, all the time. Uh, but Yiddish is not dying. And it's partly because of this paradisal person sitting to my left. Oh, thank you. No, really. Well, I, it's, and the person sitting across from me, Ariel. Yeah, there's a lot is, of Yiddish uh, going around here. And Ariel, just quickly, very quickly, because we're, we're in my gathering paradise, and here I am giving it to you again, curveballs all around. Say something about some of the Yiddish translating that you've been doing or something that you would recommend. I've been translating the work of a very, very strange and um, important uh, Yiddish modernist, Yiddish-American modernist poet named Michal Licht uh, in collaboration with Stephen I didn't pronounce Ross. it well. Michal, you did okay. Michal Licht. I've heard worse. Thanks. Um, That's a great recommendation. <laughs> um, and Licht, uh, we've uh, discovered, was uh, in correspondence and in close collaboration with a number of poets who have already have been in, uh, in the spotlight for a very long time or are becoming more spotlighted poets such as Zukovsky, uh, Louis Zukovsky, poets such as William Carlos Williams, Mina Loy. Um, so Licht is a modernist. Jerome Rothenberg and I um, are working on uh, trying to contextualize Licht within what we're calling a multilingual objectivist poetry. Um, and we believe that Licht was actually an objectivist poet um, and that uh, this uh, type of thinking would uh, create all different uh, types of um, wonderful lines between the uh, English objectivist second wave modernism and the Yiddish American introspectivist modernist movement. Fantastic. And since we're going around recommending or saying what we're doing, Peter, you do a ton of translations. What's the latest? What are you working on? What's interesting to you? Is it um, Hebrew or Arabic? Uh, it's neither really. I've been sort of translating myself lately, but um, I did just publish a, a book of uh, Hebrew translation, Gial Hoffman and Novella, New Directions, called Moods, which I think is an amazing book. Wonderful um, work. And Great. Probably his, well, I don't know if it'll be his last book, but... He's not that well these days, and I have a feeling oh. it might be his last book. That's great. And so my second recommendation, I'm really stretching this out, is um, uh, uh, in anticipation. This is uh, the 96th episode of Poem Talks. kind of hard to believe. Uh, and uh, uh, soon we will reach our 100th, and for that I will be inviting some poem talkers from the past, from past episodes to join me, maybe a panel of six or seven 
uh, and we're all going to do kind of a deep dive into certain moments in Poem Talk, certain episodes where things have gone wrong or we wish mm -hmm. we had said it a different way. So I want everybody to anticipate that fun party. Um, well, that's all the uh, urination in a desolate synagogue we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Ariel Reznikoff, Catherine Hellerstein, and Peter Cole, and especially to Catherine and Peter, who have traveled from different places in New England to get here, and also to Poem Talks directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Adelaide Powell. Thank you both very much. And to Poem Talks editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk for episode 97, I will be joined by Michael Keller, also a Yale guy, a Beinecke library guy, and Daniel Bergman and Ron Silliman to talk about three poems by the one and only Larry Eigner, including rare recordings of Eigner reading those poems. This is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.